and welcome to this week's Bunker Roundtable. I'm Ros Taylor. On the show this week, we talk over the fallout from the by-elections last week. Is Boris Johnson losing touch with reality? Plus, Yasmin Serhan of The Atlantic tells us what the Supreme Court ruling on abortion means for American women. And we discuss why RMT leader Mick Lynch is the left's latest pin-up. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker, with you until the mid-2030s and possibly longer. We've got a lot to talk about. A couple of reminders before we begin. Firstly, the season finale of our new podcast, Origin Story, is out now, with Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky talking neoliberalism. Catch it now wherever you get your podcasts. And for fans of Doomsday Watch, Patreon backers of the show can tune into a live Zoom this Wednesday at 7pm. Host Arthur Snell will be joined from Ukraine by veteran reporter John Sweeney. It's not to be missed. Talking of Arthur Snell, he joins us on today's show. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Roz. You've been going through some family papers and discovered some interesting stuff. What were the Snells up to a century ago? Yeah, I was sorting through the the house of an aged relative who's not in that house anymore. And um, I came across my grandfather's diary, uh, which... um, uh, this is a grandfather I never knew, sadly, because he, he died uh, back in the 60s. And in 1930, he went to Reykjavik. He went to Iceland. And I wasn't sure why would somebody have done that. So I did a bit of Googling, and I figured out that he was attending a, a festival that Iceland organized in 1930 to celebrate the thousandth year of the Icelandic parliament, which uh, is the world's oldest parliament. And the one thing that struck me as rather interesting about this is that Apparently, this was a big thing, a sort of celebration of parliamentary democracy, and people came from all over the world to to celebrate with Iceland. And of course, there's this weird irony that in 1930, probably people didn't know that just uh, less than 10 years later, various people, including my grandfather, would be fighting a war to uh, defend democracy across Europe. Uh, They probably thought that democracy was secure and flourishing. I don't know if that tells us something about the days we're in today, but maybe we don't want to explore that analogy too far. (laughs) You are shocking me with the news that democracy did not originate in England. Yes, of course. Um, No one likes to be reminded of the fact, uh, although because I'm married to someone from the Isle of Man, that the world's two oldest parliaments are Iceland and the Isle of Man, and they were both set up by Vikings, and it has nothing to do with Magna Carta. Also with us is the Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Serhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hello. The US Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene had a message for Britons who criticised Americans' gun laws. It was, go back to your own country. For all our problems, how does Britain look to Democrats at the moment? Uh, the word aspirational comes to mind. Um, but yeah, that that clip was quite something. Um, and not just because it's the first time I've heard go back to your own country being directed at someone from the West. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think Britain to Democrats today probably looks like a pretty magical place. I mean, after all, this is a country where there is sensible gun control and which as a result hasn't suffered from more than 250 mass shootings this year, let alone in the last several decades. Um, This is also a country where healthcare isn't restricted to those without jobs um, and where the issue of abortion rights um, is beyond dispute. 
um, you know, I think it was a 2020 YouGov poll that found that nine out of 10 uh, adults in Britain are pro-choice. That figure is close to six in 10 in the United States, though, unfortunately, only three out of the nine justices on the Supreme Court um, agreed with that. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Britain, for all of its problems, no country is perfect. I think if you're a Democrat in the U.S. right now, you're looking to virtually every other country around the world and and seeing rights being gained, um, whereas we are joining the pretty small band of countries where rights are being reversed. Yeah, I should probably point out for the sake of completeness that Northern Ireland is a different matter altogether still. Yes, yeah. Yeah, hence, um, hence Britain uh, was yes, my... Yes, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, but but I knew if, I, if I didn't mention that, then uh, people would point it out. Um, today's final panellist is comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. Hello. It was reported at the weekend that Boris Johnson wanted to build his son, Wilf, a £150,000 treehouse at Chequers. And you know those dictators with gold toilet seats? And this this was the moment I knew that Johnson was now entering kleptocrat mode. How could a treehouse possibly cost that much? Well, I don't, I, having never attempted to buy a treehouse, I have absolutely no idea how much treehouses cost. But what I do know is that I just went on right move and inputted two bed flats in Croydon. And the first result is requesting offers in the region of £760,000. So I think that the general property market is so out of whack that maybe one hundred and fifty grand for a treehouse to get little Wilf started on the ladder is a, is a pretty reasonable thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe when he gets older, you could rent it out and do a whole <laughs> buy-to-let thing. <laughs> yeah. Arthur, you you have built a treehouse, have you not? I have, yes. Um, I I I couldn't resist the temptation to show off about it on Twitter. Um, <laughs> I uh, so if anyone's interested, you could you could look it up. Uh, it definitely didn't cost one hundred and fifty grand. I reckon it probably cost about three hundred quid with all the wood and nails and things. Um, but I think uh, part of the reason that the the Wilfred Johnson one is due to be so expensive was because it would have bulletproof glass, which I suppose. If if your dad is one of the most hated men in Britain, then your treehouse needs bulletproof glass. But um, maybe that's a point when you start to think, maybe I've made the wrong life choices. <laughs> Any doubts about Johnson's unpopularity should have been put to rest last week when the Conservatives lost two very different constituencies, previously True Blue, Tiverton and Honiton in Devon and Wakefield in West Yorkshire. These weren't just losses, they were trouncings. The swing to the Lib Dems was nearly 30% in Devon and 12.7% in Yorkshire. Arthur, you went out canvassing in Tiverton. What was the feeling on the ground like? Well, the patch of Tiverton I was given to canvas was an area with fairly uh, low-cost housing, lots of pensioners, didn't seem to have a lot of um, expendable income and definitely you know, would sort of fit white working-class definition. And I was amazed to find all the people that I knocked on doors of saying a voting Lib Dem. And it struck me immediately that if the white working class, retired servicemen, there was one guy who was a former UKIP councillor, if those types of people were not going to vote for Boris Johnson or the local Tory candidate, they were in real trouble. The Tories weren't helped by a pretty abysmal candidate called Helen Herford, Did you get the sense that people were voting against her or was it mostly an anti-Johnson vote? I think it was definitely an anti-Johnson vote. So everyone I spoke to immediately started talking about Boris Johnson, about Partygate, 
um, and about the, this idea that he's this kind of indisciplined, selfish person. Uh, I know. I don't think. I think most people hadn't realised who Helen Herford was. But I was struck that she did seem to be an incredibly bad candidate. And actually, if you look at the by-elections that the Tories have lost recently, they do keep picking really bad candidates. Whereas I think that the winning candidate, certainly in Tiverton, uh, you know, a, a former army guy in the southwest of England, the military has quite a big hold on the sort of general population. Um, so it it it's intriguing that maybe this says something about the Tory party in general, that they can't persuade people to run. Uh, and so you end up getting these fairly, fairly rubbishy candidates. Labour and the Lib Dems have denied they made any form of election pact to lend support to each other. Do you think tactical voting is going to play a big part in the next general election? Because it didn't much in the last. Well, I think I think it has to if 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 there's any hope of getting rid of the Tory government. Because in spite of you know these by elections, can you can fall into the trap of thinking, oh well, you know the the government's on the run. But of course, by elections are very one off events. Um, I I sense that uh, we could see a return to what used to be the case, which was parts of the country, for example, in the Southwest, the anti-Tory vote was largely a Lib Dem vote. And then in other parts of the country, the anti-Tory vote was largely a Labour vote. And of course, there's absolutely no reason why uh, British voters can't you know, get their heads around that um, particular conundrum. Um, and uh, then, yes, that is tactical voting, and they don't need any formal electoral pact for, for that to work. I hear there used to be people who never vote Lib Dem they said, because of the coalition with the Tories. Is that starting to recede now? I think that it may well be. I mean, like, I, I remember uh, thinking about this uh, friend of mine who lives in Chesham and Amersham, uh, who during that by-election uh, last year told me that, you know, canvassers from the Lib Dems knocked on his door and asked him if he would uh, lend them his vote. And he told them, well, I lent you my vote in 2010, and that didn't work out particularly well for me. Uh, and I said, and then what did you do when you actually got to the ballot box? And he said, I voted for the Liberal Democrat candidate because that was the way that it was going to stop the Conservative candidate. So I think that the sort of, even even without any sort of formal electoral pact uh, going on, people are sort of working this out for themselves, what's most likely to stop a Conservative candidate. And the notion of a rehash of the coalition seems considerably less likely now that, I don't know, David Cameron just spends his days in a shepherd's hut and Nick Clegg exists largely in cyberspace now. <laughs> and of course, the Tories have moved so far to the right, effectively, that going into coalition with them is a very different a different, proposition. different prospect, Yeah, yeah. By most accounts, there wasn't much enthusiasm for Labour in Wakefield. Are you personally impatient for Starmer, Keir Starmer, to do more? And if so, what should he be doing? A million dollar question, really. How can he cut through? Well, I I think that there is truth in this notion that, uh, you know, governments don't, sorry, oppositions don't necessarily win elections, governments lose them. And that could be the case for by-elections as well, in particular, like it was the case of uh, th these were ripe to be taken, I suppose. Um, and so it's hardly surprising that the Labour Party won Wakefield, for example, even without any sort of grand outpouring of enthusiasm for Mr. Starmer. That said, it, it does feel genuinely inferior. Like, he spent a very 
long period of time, and I understand why, but he has spent a very long period of time emphasising what and more particularly who he isn't uh, to try and distance himself uh, from the previous leadership. And now I think that there is a bit of a desire to work out who this guy is, what is this guy for? And I think particularly at this time where we've got sort of over the course of the last week, the largest uh, rail strikes that uh, happened in this country for three decades, and the leader of the Labour Party not really being able to advocate, and, and someone like Mick Lynch coming out very clearly, right, I know what this guy stands for, I know what he wants. And I think that that sense of clarity is uh, quite sorely lacking and missed from the leadership of the Labour Party. We're going to be talking more about Mick Lynch later, of course, and his appeal at the moment. Yasmin, needless to say, no cabinet ministers followed Oliver Dowden's lead and resigned at the weekend. Since the 1922 committee can't reconstitute itself and change its rules immediately, it looks as though we may be stuck with Johnson until at least the autumn. What's coming down the line for the country by then? Yeah, I mean, it very much seems like he's managed to sort of escape once again, it feels like. Um, Though I would definitely say that his problems are far from over. Um, I mean, yes, the the by-elections have come and gone, so he's kind of overcome that hurdle, but there are a number of other things coming out through the year that I think will present opportunities to really put his leadership um, in the spotlight. I mean, the first obvious one, I think, is Tory party conference in Birmingham. Um, That will be an opportunity where he's sort of forced to be with not only, you know, members of his own party, but, you know, potentially voters and 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 the people who decide who, who picked him to be prime minister in the first place. So um, I, I think we'll probably get a sense from that as to how happy they are with him by then. Um, but then you have, you know, a litany of other things. You have the energy crisis, um, which I think it was reported in May. Ministers have been warned of potential power cuts affecting as many as six million households this winter. You have the war in Ukraine, of course, still ongoing, though that's probably one of the few areas where I think Boris Johnson is seen as quite strong. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly a number of challenges upcoming. And if you sort of have questions around his leadership hanging overhead, then that doesn't make it easy. Though I think what is striking is the fact that, as you said, we only saw one resignation. And it doesn't really seem, at least, you know, from my perspective, and, and the other panelists may have seen other things, um, it doesn't really seem like there's anyone else there who's who's trying to unseat him, not actively anyway, within his own party, I should say. I'm sure Labour would very much like the chance. I think there are in a way, but it's uh, they just reluctant to come forward. And I think the impetus isn't there because it's such a poison chalice, this job at the mm. moment, isn't it? To Theresa May, I mean, it's kind of the same thing with what happened with Theresa May, right? I mean, there was a point for the longest time, even after she won her vote of no confidence, that no one wanted the job. <laughs> like, she just, it wasn't the right time to take it. Um, and it wasn't until she, it was really untenable that she had to resign and then the opportunity presented itself. But unlike Theresa May, I don't think Boris Johnson is ever going to resign because I simply don't think it's in his character to. I think he needs to be driven out. And and um, yeah, if that doesn't happen, then he's going to continue making the argument, as he did after the no confidence vote, that the question of the leadership issue is settled. Um, you, you could argue, of course, that the, the by-elections unsettled it, but for the time being, he still seems to be pressing ahead. Well, speaking of him, I mean, I was joking a bit about clearly about dictators and gold toilet seats earlier, but he said at the weekend he was planning for a third term as PM. <laughs> And there was general hilarity at that thought. But without getting too meta, because we are talking on the bunker about bunkers, but is there more than a hint of the bunker in his mentality now? 
I mean, what else can he say, right? Like, I mean, he's not going to say, oh, well, you know, maybe it's time for someone new. I mean, I think he is, his only option really here is to double down on what he said before, which is that the issue is settled. He wants to move on, do, you know, leveling up, et cetera, et cetera, all this great work that the country needs. That's really all he can says. And unless someone else comes out and says, actually, I think I do a better job at this. He, he doesn't really, you know, I mean, as far as he's concerned, he has the support of his party behind him. He has 12 months of immunity. So, yeah, th- there is there isn't really anything else he needs to say. Not a not an uplifting thought, I have to say. It's the G7 right now in the Bavarian Alps, and there's a great deal to talk about, plus the NATO summit taking place in Madrid later this week. The last G7 was in Cornwall in 2021, and then it was all about COVID and green targets. Now it's about ending our reliance on Russian oil, a possible famine in Africa, how to arm Ukraine, things many of us did not anticipate last year. Although, if you were Arthur, you probably did. No, really. Arthur, Johnson has been pointing to cracks in other countries' support for Ukraine. Is he right or is this more posturing? I, th- I think he's half right, but it's definitely posturing. It plays very well t- to to people in Britain to be told that, you know, the French and the Germans are, don't have the stomach for this fight and all the rest of it. Um, you know, President Macron has said that Europe needs to convert to a war economy. So you're not going to say that if you if you have some idea that you're going to end the war in Ukraine in a few months' time. Um, but it's very convenient to to Boris Johnson to try to portray this sort of Britain alone with Ukraine sort of faux Churchill uh, narrative. There were some hopes that the war in Ukraine might be over quickly, and those have been dashed. Russia took a town in the Donbass at the weekend, and this afternoon, as we record on Monday, it blew up a Ukrainian shopping centre. Can anyone see an end game out of this? I think there is a there is a realistic end game. Um, although it, when I say realistic, it doesn't mean it's necessarily the most likely. Uh, President Zelensky himself did one of his uh, video links with the G seven leaders, and he talked about the possibility of of the conflict being brought to a close. Uh, over this summer. Now, I think that's a bit over-optimistic, but the other talk you hear is that basically the two sides settle into a kind of stalemate over the winter, and then during that period, Western countries resupply Ukraine, particularly with new weapon systems that they haven't yet had the chance to get trained up on, and then with that, in the spring, they're able to drive the Russians out of uh, their territory or perhaps not including Crimea in this, but certainly out of the the Donbass. Now, that might seem ridiculously optimistic, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. What do you think will happen as opposed to a better, you know, the best case scenario that you just set out? Well, I think what is more likely is that you get that renewed offensive in the spring, but it isn't quite as uh, effective as everyone hopes. And it's coming on the back of a really hard winter and hard in two ways. One, clearly for those in Ukraine, harder, hardest of all, living through a winter during a war, but actually very hard for Europe. Uh, we'll see very high prices. We'll see energy shortages. And that's when, very understandably, you will see uh, different countries wondering whether or not they can sustain the domestic politics of of the kind of economic crisis whilst also trying to support what looks like a very difficult military campaign in another country. 
Ahir, the threat of a famine in Africa isn't getting much attention in the UK, though it is one of the things that the G7 are supposed to be discussing. What's hmm. causing it and which countries are affected? Um, it's the case that, uh, of course, all of this has been massively exacerbated by the war in Ukraine and the blockades uh, in the Black Sea. So you're unable to get out vast quantities of things like sunflower oil, wheat, barley, corn, where Ukraine and Russia have previously been uh, the largest exporters uh, in the world, among the largest exporters. Uh, Russia is the top exporter of fertilizer generally in the world. Uh, and Ukrainian wheat largely goes to poorer countries. And this is causing like dramatically acute uh, problems in places like Somalia, South Sudan, Libya, like chances of really serious uh, famine. And the drought is very bad as well there, isn't it? That's the other big, big problem. Yeah, so it, it's sort of like a natural thing happening, which is sort of bad enough in and of itself. And then that is getting, again, exacerbated by the geopolitical struggles, which are heaping sort of further further difficulty onto this problem. There's, there's a weaponization of hunger going on here, isn't there? Yeah, I think that it's well known, particularly uh, in the Russian government, that, you know, on the one hand, that, yes, we are having problems with energy prices and things like that. But if they are able to cause like dramatic humanitarian, unignorable uh, sort of atrocities, maybe that will mean that people feel the need to remove sanctions. But yeah, so you're getting a weaponization of hunger, which the poorest and most vulnerable people and countries in the world can scarcely uh, afford. At the same time, this is understandably causing the movement of peoples away from situations of such extraordinary hardship. And then we will see once again, uh, I fear, in the near future, the sort of thing that we saw um, on the Belarusian border a while ago, where you also had governments effectively weaponizing migrants and using sort of the bodies of people trying to as as a weapon being pushed across borders so it really is sort of a, a situation that's being made worse on the ground in some of the most poorest and most vulnerable uh, places in the world and there doesn't seem to be like there will be a great deal of either respite or understanding if these people are able to make it out to places that should be places of greater safety and security. And Russia is quite shameless about this. There was one uh, propagandist who spoke recently and said, all our hope is in the famine. Yeah, people know, it's known what they're doing. Uh, But I think that it's been the case throughout all of this. And we've seen that up to the very highest echelons of the Russian government and Putin himself are extraordinarily cynical actors and who are sort of seemingly willing to do whatever it takes in pursuit of this sort of extraordinary imperialist adventure. Yasmin, let's move to the big news of last week, the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe v. Wade. You've been following it closely. It was expected, but it's still come as a shock, hasn't it? How how did you feel when the news broke? Um... (laughs) Be honest, the only thing I remember is really kind of just putting my head on my desk because you're right. We we knew this was happening. We even got a draft leak of it, which I think as we've talked about on this podcast is is not a thing that happens really uh, when it comes to the Supreme Court. But but even still, um, it's yeah, it's just I think it's always going to be shocking when suddenly a law and a protection that's been around for half a century 
um, just disappears. Um, and there was one line in particular of the ruling that stood out to me, which was the, it said, we do not pretend to know how our political system or society will respond to today's decision overturning Roe and Casey, um, which I just, I was just shaking my head reading it. Cause I was like, well, you're about to find out, but like, it's just such a disingenuous um, thing to say. I mean, of course the court's role is, is not to, to be an arbiter of public opinion, but it's to interpret the constitution and, and make decisions effectively. But it was just kind of, it just very much felt like the vast majority of Americans were not being heard um, because this abortion rights are something that a majority of Americans uh, do support, even if, if a narrow majority. I think the last figure I saw was um, 55% of Americans are pro-life. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think overall it it was particularly shocking for those of us who grew up with the sort of idea, however flawed, that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. I mean, this is something we heard President Obama talk about a lot of the time. And, and perhaps in the 2008s and 2012s, it, that may have felt very true. But since 2016, it, it really feels as though my country has been embarking on what I can only really kind of think of as the great backslide. I mean, on democracy, on guns, on women's rights now. Um, the, the question I think we're all fearfully asking ourselves is what's next? Where is abortion now illegal in the US? There are a number of states now that have basically the ban came in as soon as the ruling came through. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a tricky question, actually, because the legal maneuvering that's happening in various states um, is, is kind of well underway. So um, my understanding was in the immediate aftermath of the ruling, there were three states, South Dakota, Louisiana and Kentucky, that had laws immediately banning most abortions. Now, I think a number of states have joined that, and that's because more than a dozen states had something called trigger ban, um, which were designed to take effect if Roe were to be struck down. Um, and and those those bans um, are typically they require um, the attorney general or the governor or the legislature to certify that the court that the court's opinion did indeed overturn Roe v. Wade. So those are expected to take place within a month. So within a month, I think we're going to see a lot more states banning abortion um, than there are currently. Um, I think at least eight states banned the procedure the day the ruling was released. Um, but there are several others where there are anti-abortion laws on the books, um, and, and those are expected to be um, kind of reactivated. I think the easiest way to answer this question is to talk about which states still continue to legalize abortion. Um, and by my count, I think there are 20 states in the District of Columbia where abortion is legal and is likely to be protected. You're from one of the states that where it will still be legal. In fact, the state said it will become a safe haven for women seeking abortions. What does that mean in practice? Yeah, um, California Governor Gavin Newsom, um, he joined the, the governors of Washington and Oregon and basically said that the West Coast is going to kind of launch an offensive. They call it the West Coast Offensive to protect access for reproductive care. And, and what that means in practice is that California, like many other states, um, is going to be a safe haven for women living in states that are currently banning abortion to go to to seek that kind of care. So the states are really preparing themselves um, to receive uh, people from outside. It's really heartwarming to see 
states like my home state of California step in to fill the void that was left behind by the Supreme Court. And, you know, we're increasingly seeing individual citizens doing the same thing. Um, Over the weekend, I saw numerous videos on social media in which women in states and even countries where abortion is legal offering up their homes to those seeking abortions and saying that they'll drive them to the clinics and they'll feed them and things like that. Um, But unfortunately, I think the fact of the matter is that those who are able to travel across state lines, let alone to different countries to access abortions, are going to be among the economically advantaged. Um, It's low-income people, it's people of color, and it's adolescents who are going to be majorly disadvantaged disadvantaged by this. And unfortunately, I'm not sure if in their case, um, states like California doing what they're doing are going to be enough. Yeah, it's hard to flee to another state if you're, say, 14 or 15, isn't it? It's just not right, viable. Exactly. You had a very powerful piece in The Atlantic um, a few days ago by Ma- uh, Margaret Atwood, who mm. was basically drawing on the similarities between this and and her famous novel, uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, that was that was an incredibly powerful read, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd seen loads of um, sort of Handmaid's Tale, Gilead references being made in the aftermath, uh, but perhaps no one makes it <laughs> makes that comparison quite as Margaret Atwood did. Yeah, it was it was very powerful. And, and look, she kind of made this argument, being like, the Supreme Court is trying to take us back to the 17th century, <laughs> um, and, and if you look back at that time, that that's not necessarily a place you want to be, and that. Um, yeah, in effect, what she was writing was fiction, but that the Supreme Court in, in its ruling is is working very hard to make it real. Now, now of course, people could argue that that's a bit of a stretch, that that um, you know we're, we're not going to be getting standard issue red uh, uniforms from the government um, anytime soon. But I think you know if if you're watching protections that have been established, protected by the highest court in the land for fifty years, suddenly taken away. You, you have every right to be concerned and, and scared. America has been an increasingly divided nation for several years. Do you think this will start to break it? Um, I don't know that this issue alone. Um, I mean, I think I would argue, and actually The Atlantic had a pretty good piece uh, to this effect um, the same week that, that the Roe verdict came down, um, which is that America is kind of functioning not like a single nation divided into red and blue America, but in fact, sort of two nations within kind of almost a fra- already fractured nation, one in which you're increasingly seeing sort of red states establishing electoral dominance over things like the Electoral College and the GOP appointed majority in the Supreme Court and using that dominance to impose its economic and social model on the entire nation regardless of whether these policies have the majority public support. Um, and so I, I think what we're seeing, and, and this is certainly part of it, is is a country that, that has, you know, maybe threads keeping it together. That, that isn't to say, and I don't think the, the piece makes this argument that the U.S. is on a brink of a civil war, but it does actually make the, the interesting point that, you know, the U.S. has his, like, historically, geographically been kind of a divided place. I mean, you're even thinking back to like, the Union versus the Confederacy, and and it very much feels like we are reverting back to those deep divisions. There was a very ominous passage in the ruling. Justice Clarence Thomas said, in his opinion, that we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. Now, that won't mean a lot, perhaps, to British listeners, but those are the court cases that legalised contraception, gay marriage, and protected the right to privacy. Can you imagine the court coming for these too? 
Yeah, I think a lot of people shuddered a bit when they read that. Um, it's worth noting that um, in Justice Samuel Alito's opinion for the court, he did make something of an attempt to distinguish Roe from these other cases, very much implying that you know those other cases do not involve the critical moral question posed by abortion, I think was his wording. Um, but the fact that Clarence Thomas, in his... Um, in his own um, concurring opinion, felt the need to say that, almost extending an invitation for for the court to to, to actually reconsider these cases, I think is very ominous. And at the end of the day, I, I think even if we think actually that's a step too far, or they wouldn't dare, or um, you know, it's not very likely. I, I think you know, for for a long time, we thought that this was very unlikely. So I think if Roe is taught has anything, it's that. Um, you can't really take your rights for granted. Finally, as rail workers went on strike last week, General Secretary of the RMT Union Mick Lynch was running rings around his critics in interviews and gaining a bit of a cult following in the process. Clips of his wry retorts circulated on Twitter and TikTok. Just begin with you, Mick Lynch. You heard Chris Philp there. You've heard Grant Shapps today saying you're affecting ordinary people, including his daughter who's taking exams on Thursday, and you're callous going ahead with this strike. What do you say? Well, I've heard Chris Philp and uh, Grant Shapps talking a pack of nonsense, and he's just repeated it now. He's talking about trains that can uh, measure the tracks. We've had those trains since 2010, and I negotiated the agreement to bring them in. So if they want to use examples, they should use examples that are actually true. And Grant Shapps has spent the entire... But why is this 60-year-old trade union leader suddenly tickling the parts that Labour can't reach? Ah, here, who exactly is Mick Lynch? What's his background? So Mick Lynch is the head of the RMT. Uh, so he's a Londoner, I think grew up in Kilburn, so uh, relatively near where I grew up in Wembley. Um, and he started off in construction, but was blacklisted uh, sort of illegally um, when, when he was a younger man. So couldn't work in construction for a long time and I think has the has the settlement check when it was finally found that he was illegally blacklisted uh, for trying to organize people I think he's got that um, framed on his wall um, and so ended up working on Eurostar and getting involved with the RMT then and is now uh, the general secretary of the union running rings around people who seem to be getting increasingly um, hysterical uh, when interviewing him, Piers Morgan insisting that uh, he is some sort of Thunderbirds puppet who wants to wreak evil across the land. Uh, and he's like, no, I think it's mainly, mainly I'm just interested in the pay rise for my members. What is it about the way he makes his case that's cutting through? I think that it's just the clarity of what he wants and the fact that what he wants is readily understandable. Like, you never get the impression that he is asking for anything that he doesn't truly believe in or advocating anything that he doesn't truly believe in. And I think that that's probably a lot easier when you're operating as, for the time being, basically a single-issue campaigner. Uh, he can just go on television or radio or whatever, and make the case that everyone can see, which is, hang on, everything is getting considerably more expensive. Uh, and if you work in the public sector or know people who work in the public sector, you will know that wages have not kept up uh, with prices or things for quite a while. 
and it's just someone saying, come on, this has got to change uh, in some way. You're not required to agree with the guy on everything, you know, like the, uh, I think that part of the reason in this country that uh, we are economically in the position that we are, or what has exacerbated that position is a Brexit that uh, Mr. Lynch sort of voted for, advocated that the RMT encouraged its members to vote for, and doesn't regret voting for uh, to this day. But that's not what this is about. This is about, he's like, right, in the here and now, this is a problem. This is what I want uh, for my members, which is just a pay rise, not even an inflation-based pay rise. Uh, And I think that people can readily sympathise and empathise with that. And he seems pretty clear. Yes, he's blunt, isn't he? And I think people like bluntness. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's no, like, you don't don't watch an interview with uh, Mr. Lynch and be like, "Uh, does he he really want that? Like, like, it's, it's pretty clear. Yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't ask yourself what's he really thinking because yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's saying what he's thinking. Arthur, the general public don't always have a lot of time for striking union leaders. What makes Lynch so different? Well, I wonder whether part of this is to do with the post-pandemic era of taking a different view on using transport. So, certainly, people I know, and I speak for myself, uh, if you know there's a train strike. You just reorganise things um, and you know w- work from home and so on. Now, I do accept that there are plenty of people who can't do that, but a lot of the people who perhaps ordinarily would be uh, rather sort of anti-trade union are probably the kind of people who can work from home if they need to. So I just wonder whether um, the impact of these strikes is just not what it was uh, in, in an earlier era. Yeah, and there's no sign of a deal on rail workers pay yet. But if things escalate and more unions strike, for example, teachers unions, do you think the public mood could change? Yes, I I can imagine um, teacher strikes, uh, which was certainly a feature of the 1980s when I was growing up. uh, I think that is very difficult, even for parents who are probably quite sympathetic to the situation that teachers find themselves in, uh, just because of all the disruption to you know, the family life and, and kids being at home and, and not, not knowing what to do with them and so on. Having said all of that, I think the other thing is that there's this acute awareness of a cost of living crisis, which is by definition affecting everybody. Uh, and I, mm. I, I think that a lot of people have a, plenty of sympathy for public sector workers um, in this context. Now, I don't know whether that sympathy runs out if your own life is severely disrupted by striking workers. But it's not clear to me yet that that is necessarily the case. We talked a bit earlier about Keir Starmer. He, of course, banned his shadow cabinet from joining picket lines. Uh, They haven't all obeyed that instruction. Um, Do you think he underestimated public support for the strikes? Yeah, I should think so. I think he's an extremely cautious person. And, of course, he's hyper-cautious when... Um, what's going on relates to the the perception that he's a sort of leftist and anything where because you know the Tories constantly try to paint him as this sort of Corbynite, um, not not very successfully I think. But so he's going to be hyper cautious about that, and it's a tricky one for him because I think if he did come out in favour of the strikers, uh, it would just be a gift to the Daily Mail, which still. Um, dictates the news agenda because they, they have a means of getting, even though no one reads their newspaper anymore, they still then dictate what the BBC talks about. So so I think I can, I can sort of understand 
his caution. He wouldn't need to be so cautious if he could just become a better communicator, but that's probably a faint hope. Yes, it's not a million miles between Jeremy Corbyn and uh, and Lynch in terms of what they actually believe, is there? I mean, as Ahia mentioned earlier, the support for Brexit, for example, it was quite clear that Corbyn was not exactly a re- fervent Remainer. Uh, they ideologically they aren't that very far apart, and yet Lynch seems to hit that spot that Corbyn didn't. Yeah, well, I I think it's partly because um, he he comes across as a genuine working man, and and as I hear talked about, you know, he's he's a man who can roll his sleeves up and do an actual practical job. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> I wouldn't want him near my electrics. Um, I think that would that would that would end badly for all involved. Um, <laughs> So, so I think in that sense, and the other thing is, you know, a lot of a lot of people, um, when being interviewed by a hostile interviewer, come across as a bit sort of shouty and angry. And Corbyn, when he was put on the spot, often started to sound kind of rather, rather, you know, that that it was it was unfair that he was being asked these difficult questions. Whereas what Mick Lynch seems to achieve is that he doesn't mind how hostile the interviewer is; he'll stand his ground. And and he'll make his point in a in a kind of straightforward, easy to understand way, and I think people just respect that. I think what's also important on that on that point is that I think because he isn't like in the running to be prime minister or what have you, it is you know how people used to talk about how loads of policies like renationalizing loads of things and like loads of policies are very popular in and of themselves but then when you put them all together in a big bucket maybe they're not all as popular and if you're the person who's fronting a thing saying we're going to do all six of these things then people might be like oh hang on a second whereas if what Mr Lynch is doing is just going on telly and being like very specifically this has nothing to do with what he thinks about I don't know what should happen to the water or his views on NATO or anything like that. He's just like, my members need a pay rise to keep up with this horrific thing that's happening in the cost of living. And that's what we're sort of judging him on. Yeah, speaking of the Labour leadership out here, the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, he got a very warm reception at Glastonbury at the weekend. In fact, I think he got an ovation. He also seems to reach parts that Starmer can't. Do you see him as a future leader, assuming that he becomes an MP again, which he would have to do in order to become a leader? Listen, he'll he'll probably go for it eventually, and more power to the guy's elbow. It's like he, he if he wants to be the leader of the Labour Party, far be it from me to kink shame. Uh, I, I've never particularly, <laughs> <laughs> I've never particularly understood masochism myself, but I know that certain people do want to become the leader of the Labour Party, and uh, fair enough, that's what gets you going, guys. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What entertainments have given our panellists a break from the bruising world of politics? Yasmin? Um, so I've just started reading Sarah Lyle's great book, The Anglophiles, uh, A Field Guide to the British. Apparently, after living here for five years, I, I still don't really understand. Um, that's not true. But um, yeah, it's it's a very funny read. And there's a couple of passages that are just really great in sort of, I think, articulating the differences between these two countries. Um, I'm just going to read very quickly from this one, just because I thought this was hilarious. Um, But in terms of the opposites, we look to the future, they look to the past. We run for election, they stand for it. We noisily and proudly proclaim our Americanness. They shuffle their feet and apologize for their Britishness. We trumpet our successes, they brag about their failures. 
when they say they're pleased to meet you, they often mean nothing of the kind. Uh, <laughs> that was news to me. So anyway, um, yeah, I'm reading that. It's it's great so far. It's I'm still pretty um, in the early pages. That sounds very good. Arthur, what have you been doing? Um, well, it, it's it's neither. It, I'm I'm breaking out of the format because it's not a book or a TV or anything. Um, but uh, next weekend, I'm doing one of these stupid things that middle-aged men do, uh, which is ru- running around in the Lake District with a rucksack on, you know, trying not to have a heart attack. So I've been doing lots of <laughs> lots of training in in order to get ready for that. And and it, there, you know, there's you have to just this time of year with the, the early summer and and flowers and the the wonderful kind of the glories of nature. It it has been incredibly life enhancing. So if I do die of a heart attack next weekend, at least I would have had a good few weeks of um you know getting outside and and, and getting a bit fitter. <laughs> Arthur, I feel really bad. Like when you said that you were looking forward to one of these stupid things that middle aged men do, I was like, is he talking about his upcoming book launch? Because he seemed really excited about that when he texted me. Like I was like, you're you're doing yourself down, Arthur. I'm sure it's no. going to be great. It's not it's not a midlife crisis writing the book. I, I realise there's such a long list of things, and you know it could be sort of buying a sports car or eloping with a younger woman. But it, no, it's none of those. It's running around the Lake District with a rucksack <laughs> on my back. That that is the specific middle age uh, crisis that I will be engaging in next weekend. <laughs> Is that actually called fell running? Yes, fell running. But it's a two-day fell running event, which means you have to carry a tent, which makes it even worse. Oh, my God. Well, you know, I hope you're going to be sharing some pictures of, of, of this on, uh, of blisters. on uh, social media. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> ah, here, what have you been up to? Uh, I, last night, went to go and watch Top Gun Maverick. Hey. Uh, I know it's been oh, out it's for a while. Good, isn't uh, it? Yeah, I, I know it's been out for a while, but I've been away for a while. So it was the first opportunity uh, that uh, we had to go to the cinema and watch it. And it was genuinely uh, wonderful. Uh, so I heartily recommend that. That that was in my cinematic past and my cinematic future is very much looking forward to uh, the new Thor film, which comes out uh, next week. Oh, my God. Now that looks dreadful. I have to say, I've seen the trailer several times um, and it looks dreadful, but I, I do agree. Ross, did you, you did you miss the part where he's the God of Lightning? Because that was that was a really important part. Like, that's, uh, it's really it's all cool and like really fun. Um, yeah, it's it's not, to be honest, really my thing. But I did enjoy <laughs> I did enjoy Top Gun Maverick a lot, although quite often I was very confused about what was um, virtual reality and what was reality. So I was sometimes <laughs> thought that people shouldn't be about to die because clearly they were just you know, the simulator, weren't they? Uh, and, that, and that made me uh, very confused. Uh, it was that that was the big drawback. But I was surprised by how good an actor Tom Cruise still is, even in his sort of Viagra moments that he was having in this. Um... <laughs> he's like he turns sixty next week. I know the guy looks incredible. <laughs> the same age as Mick Lynch. <laughs> Oh, wow. as, it, as it turns out, yeah. On the um, Top Gun thing, I in I haven't got to see it yet, but in preparation, I thought I'd better re-watch the old one. And I sat down with my teenage daughter, of course, hadn't seen it before, and I thought she would think it was great. And it see, the, the first Top Gun film, uh, watching it in 2022, seemed completely rubbish, and I wasn't even sure I could be bothered to watch the next one. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't seem I, I to have aged very uh, well. I will say as someone who hadn't watched it before going to watch the, I, so I watched it just before I went to go see Top Gun Maverick. And I liked this. I thought it was very important to watch the first one to understand the second one, but I 
perhaps controversially liked the second one more. It was one of the rare occasions where I thought the sequel was better than the, than the original. Um, though I recognize that's probably not a widely held opinion. Yeah. I, I really love the idea that like trying to watch it to gain a really deep understanding uh, beyond <laughs> just like the entire message is the Navy is cool. Fast aeroplanes are cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I did see Lightyear at the weekend, but to be honest, I can't fully recommend that apart from the robot cat, which outacts everything else in the in the CGI universe. And the, the cat is the only thing worth going for, quite frankly. It was a, a little bit of a disappointment. But because I am so far behind the times, I've only just started watching Borgen. And I know everybody else listening to this and everybody on this podcast probably will have already watched Borgen and the new Borgen. But I hadn't because when it first came out, I had no like because I had small kids and was trying to hold down a job and so I had no time to watch TV um, but uh, it, it's 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 really magnificent it's really good isn't it I hope you've all seen Borgen yeah, it's brilliant yeah I love it and that's the end of this week's bunker thanks to Arthur Snell thank you to Yasmin Serhan thanks for having me and Ahir Shah thank you we'll be back tomorrow with another bunker daily and the full length show this time next week If you like what we're doing, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Roz Taylor with Arthur Snell, Yasmin Zahan and Ahir Shah. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieber. The producers are Jelena Sofronevich and Jacob Archbold. Lead producer, Jacob Jarvis. And group editor is Andrew Harrison. Our theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.